morning of my baptism, my parents bring me into their room. They said they heard rumors at the church that I was pregnant. And they asked me, who's you? I said, well, I don't know. And I'm standing in front of a board of people and they asked me if I'm pregnant. I said, same thing, I don't know. They said, well, since you don't know, they were not gonna baptize you today. They ran their test, they brought me upstairs, and they said, I'm sorry to tell you, your son's gonna die. And I told God that if he took my son, that he might as well just take my life. And one of the women who came to pray with me came over and we were just talking on my son's bed, chopping it up, talking about life, being a pastor's daughter, everything, and talking about salvation, knowing God for myself versus just the God of my parents. And they prayed with me. And the peace of God that came over me. It was like, it's indescribable. I was born and raised in a Christian home. Let's just get that out the way. Uh, I'm a pastor's daughter. And so I was raised in the faith. I did all those things that you do um, when you're a pastor's kid. You help in the different departments. You're helping with kids. You're kind of all over the place. And so we were in church all the time. Um, but I actually grew up east of Toronto uh, in a predominantly white neighborhood. And I was also a really like chubby kid. And so it caused a lot of insecurities for me. Um, there wasn't much diversity out there. There really, you could count on one hand how many like black people out there. And so it, it caused a lot of just like identity issues. Um, trying to understand being black in a, in a society that really just wasn't always for us and not to mention so we're in church all the time so now i'm black um, i'm chunky and i'm christian and so my parents would often say like if i wanted to go to a school dance or, like we don't do that that's like the devil's music and then they would never really explain as great as they were they would never fully explain why we didn't do something it was just like well god don't like it and that's just what it was and so Eventually, when they allowed me to go to a school dance, I went and ain't nobody danced with me. They were dancing with all the other little kids. And that really just made me feel even more unwanted and just trying to navigate that growing up. Like I speak French and all these things that are beautiful when you look at it on the outside. But at the time, it didn't all come together for me. And so fast forward to when I was 14, uh, my aunt, she owns a shop in Toronto. My parents had driven and they just dropped us off at the shop because I mean, when you're family, you get your hair done last. And so being the last ones there, we were there for the whole day. I stepped outside for a moment just to get some fresh air. I was at the convenience store and there's a group of boys who came up and just said, hey, I said, hey, and a conversation started. And they were like, hey, do you want to go for a walk? And I didn't think nothing of it. I was like, sure. When we went for a walk, everything was cool. Came back, checked in with my aunts. And then um, they're like, hey, let's go for a walk again. And I did. But the second time, um, I ended up behind an abandoned building at the bottom of some concrete steps. And they raped me. It was a group of them. I don't know how many uh people have this idea that when you're raped it has to be violent there's like guns there's knives there's all these things and for me it really wasn't that it was more i was frozen out of fear out of the in intimidation of how many people there were at one point i did try to leave i tried to like climb the steps and then they pulled me back down and so i really didn't feel like i had a choice and so i went in between trying to understand what was happening, but then also just blacking out with everything happening around me. 
I left during the day. By the time they finished, it was nighttime. And so they finally let me go. I get upstairs. I'm walking through the parking lot, and I see two carfuls of men. And I don't know anything from anything. And I didn't even know where I was. I said, how do I get back? And they're like, oh, it's right there. And I didn't realize I was so close to where my aunt's shop was because I just thought I was in a whole other part. So I get back to the shop and my aunt's like, where were you? I was about to call the cops. And I was like, oh, uh, I just got lost. I, I was like, I'm not telling nobody what happened. And it seemed like everybody around my aunt knew what was happening, like the men in her shop, because they were asking for my number. They were talking to me. They were smiling at me. And I was just like, I'm just not going to say nothing and tell nobody. Hmm. So I go home and about two weeks later, some of the guys were bragging about it and one of my aunt's clients overheard and she told my aunt and uh, telephone tag my aunt told my grandma who told my mom my other aunts found out my cousin like the whole family found out cousins everybody and so i remember that day i woke up and i was getting ready to go to school and my parents called me in their room and they asked me about this thing that happened and i was like i don't want to talk about it i was quiet and so they brought me to the police station and still I didn't want to talk about it. And so there's a woman caught there and what she said changed the trajectory of my life. She said, well, the age of consent is 14. And when she said that, I said, okay, well, then I did it. Can I go home? And how old were you at that time? 14. I just didn't want to talk about it. So my parents brought me to the hospital, same thing. I just did what I had to do to get it done. And as we're driving back home, there was a conversation between my mom and dad and my mom, I guess trying to understand what was happening. She asked if there was a group home that they could bring me to. And my dad at the time, he worked in group homes and he's like, no, we're not going to bring her to a group home. She's going to stay. And in that moment, I made up in my mind that my mom didn't want me. I went from this innocent kid to a throwaway really quickly. And I just knew I was rejected, abandoned, it just didn't feel good. And so after that moment, we were still trying to get back to normalcy. Um, I had this label on me. I was the disgrace of the family. I had brought shame to the family. And so when I would go to my grandma's house, because we still visited, all my cousins would um, call me names. They, they literally called me every name in the book. And it wasn't just that they called me names, it's that they text my phone, they called my phone, they sent me emails, they wrote on my Facebook. They, they harassed me in every single way to let me know that I was nothing and that I was the scum of the earth. And at the time, there was only one person who protected me, which was my aunt's boyfriend. So whenever I would go to my grandma's house, uh, he and I would just sit on the porch. And when they would come to call me names, he would chase them back inside, like, leave her alone, don't, don't, just don't talk to her. And so what started off as protection, um, then turned into grooming, and then turned into molestation. It was very subtle how it happened, a touch here, a brush there. I eventually understood what was happening, but the reason I didn't say anything is because I'm like, nobody's gonna believe me. And so I told a friend and a boyfriend at the time, but that was it. it. Nobody else knew. I eventually just started when he would come into the room, I would leave the room. And um, one time somebody had asked, like, why does she not stay in the same room with you? And he's like, I don't know. And we just left it at that. When I was um, 16 is when it finally stopped. 
I think he just got tired of it. And there was more that happened, but um, it isolated me more and more. Like, I would beg my parents, like, hey, I don't want to go down to my grandma's house, but I could never tell them why. And they're just like, well, we can't leave you here by yourself because of your behaviors. And so I was forced to go. But eventually, I, I just found ways to um, keep myself protected, I guess. But all of this kept me more and more insecure. It kept me more and more feeling like I needed to run from everybody. And so I found myself on the internet back in the day when there was MSN and Black Planet and all those type of things. I would be on there and I'd be talking to people. And the people that I was talking to, they were friendly. They were happy. They were nice. They were. And for people that may not know these websites, these are more like chat oh, rooms. Oh, I'm dating and... myself. <laughs> they are, yeah, they're chat rooms. They are, I way before Facebook ever started. But yeah, essentially the chat rooms, you can yeah. just talk to different people. And and before you get to that part, Cola, um, you grew up in a, in a Christian home? Yes. And... Were you personally, you personally, were you hearing from God at this time? Was that not even, your mind not even there? Like, where was your relationship with God even in this time as you're experiencing all of these things? Are you crying out to Him? Are you having conversations with Him? Are you hearing from Him? I, I would just love some insight as to uh, what did that look like in that time for you? In that time, I believe I was just very numb to everything. Like, I still went to church. I still did children's ministry. I still did everything that I was supposed to do, but it was wow. out of routine versus out of an actual relationship with him. In the moment from 14 to 16, it was like prayers, but it was just very numb because from what I understood, nobody wanted me. Wow. From what I understood, nobody cared. Yeah. And you, and it's interesting that you mentioned you were even serving and working with children and nobody really knew at least from church what was happening with you no wow nobody knew wow so so you were in the chat rooms and and you began to get involved in this so what happened next yeah so i was in the chat rooms i was talking i met this one guy um he seemed really sweet we we're talking about um i was talking about the rape i was just really open about it of why i'm like guarded and why i don't really talk to people or why i'm just quiet to myself or why my relationship with my family was the way it was and he seemed really understanding and so we, we formed a friendship it was cool now he didn't know exactly where i lived but he knew what city i lived in and so he one night decided to take the hour-long drive to my city and at the time my parents both worked nights so I was home with my sister by myself and so he called my house phone consistently and at first I would not answer then I would answer to say hey I, I'm not talking to you I'm not going he's like where do you live I'm like I'm not telling you and he kept going he's like I'm not going to stop calling until you tell me and so I said okay fine I answered the phone told him where I lived I made sure I put on layers of clothes I'm like okay I'm not going to give him one inkling that anything's about to go down um so he arrives it was him and his friend I take them to the basement because my sister's upstairs sleeping and in the basement at first we're just talking and just you know how's it going all that and then it progressed really quickly with about like one swipe he was able to like pull off my pants and he, um he raped me with his friend next to him cheering him on he gave me a kiss on the cheek and then he left that was the first night that i really cried out to god I cried out, so my like, God, I did not do this. This was not me. Like, please don't let me get pregnant. That was my prayer. I said, please don't let me get pregnant. I'm so sorry. I'll serve you. I'll I'll focus on what you need me to focus on. Like, I'll get off these chats. Like, that was my first time I really remember crying out fully to him and just asking him for help. And I didn't get pregnant. 
And I was I was really happy about that. So I I got even more focused on God and more more reading my Bible and and trying to just live a normal life. I go into grade 11, I am working out, I am losing weight, I am feeling confident, I am feeling like beautiful, like things are really starting to work for me. I'm involved in church where they're talking about baptism and I'm like, yeah, I want to get baptized. This whole thing, I'm going through the whole process to be baptized. Well, on the morning of my baptism, my parents bring me into their room and um, they said they heard rumors at the church that I was pregnant and they asked me who's shoe. I said, well, I don't know. And they said, how do you not know if you're pregnant? And I kind of just tried to play it off. But um, they told me I had to go to the church and we had to talk to the board. So we got to church and I'm standing in front of a board of people and they asked me if I'm pregnant. I said, same thing, I don't know. And they said, well, since you don't know, then we're not gonna baptize you today. I had already planned, I had already invited everybody out. And um, they said they weren't gonna baptize me because it would be a bad look. To, to baptize a pregnant woman. So what they did say is that I should go to the doctor the next day, and if I'm not pregnant, then they'll baptize me. I will go from there. So that night I had to sit and watch my sister and everyone else get baptized. And when people asked me, I couldn't even like fully explain to them. I just said, it's just, it's just not the right time right now. Mm. The next day I go to the doctors and I found out that I definitely was pregnant. And um, a month later, my son was born. I was eight months pregnant at the time of my baptism. And so my son came um, in April 24, 2006. I was 17 by the time I gave birth to my son. And so life with my son, everyone was angry. Everyone was angry. Like I definitely fit the stereotype of pastor's kid getting pregnant out of wedlock. Like I fit that stereotype to a T. But you know what was good? is I was so dead inside. I was so suicidal. It was so dark over everything that was happening with the molestation and everything else that when my son came, the, the name calling, it stopped. My cousins, they stopped mocking me. And it's like this new life brought joy to, to me. And as much as my parents weren't the happiest about it, it did kind of like bring peace in a way. And for me, it gave me a reason to live. I said, okay, well, I don't necessarily want to live for myself, but I'm gonna live for him. And I'm gonna take care of him and I'm gonna do everything that I can to, to be there for him. And so I, I, I went back to school. I graduated um, high school. And in my grade 12 year, I was writing my math exams. I got a call saying that my son was in the hospital. This is about a year later. And when they sent him to the doctors, they uh, realized that he had elevated levels of protein in his blood and he was diagnosed with muscular dystrophy. And muscular dystrophy, it eventually wastes away the muscles in the body. So his body wasn't creating enough protein and so it would deteriorate his muscles. That's what I was told. The doctor said he would never walk. By age 10, he'd be in a wheelchair. And by age 18, he would die. That's what the doctor said. And I knew in that moment that no matter what God did, that everything would be fine. I said, well, whether God takes him early or late, it is in God's hand. And that was just the attitude that I had. And so I'm like, I'm gonna raise him like he's any other kid. We're not gonna do anything crazy. We're not gonna try to do, to, we're gonna do everything um, to make sure that he has a normal life and we just let God decide. And that, that was the choice that I made. His dad was never in the picture, but I had chosen that I was going to live for him.
The interesting thing was a year after, um, around the same time, it had been a year since I had first tried to get baptized. And they told me to wait a year and try again. So here I was ready to try again. I was still like, God loves me. We're going to do this. And as I tried, I hit so many barriers. And the interesting thing was one of the things they wanted me to do was apologize publicly for my son, publicly for the embarrassment. And I just didn't feel like my son was a mistake. And so I didn't want to do it. And because I didn't want to do it, they had stopped me from reading in church. They had stopped me from being a part of the children's ministry. Like They had stopped me from every single activity that I was a part of. And so even more so, I was isolated from just even being active in church. And because I had tried again for the baptism and they were making excuses, my dad was like, you know what? You can go to a different church. Like he saw what was happening and he's always been the one to want to keep the family together. Where I go, we go. Um, but after this, he was like, you can go somewhere else. As long as you're in church, that was a deal. I said, okay. Wow. Now, Cola, before you move on from there, I... I would love to get a little bit more of your perspective on this as far as you saying uh, you standing up for your child. Like what, you know, for, for a person your age at that time to mm. do that, that's a big deal to be able to say, no, I'm keeping my child. Mm -hmm. What was going through your mind? If you can kind of give us a little bit of insight, why that decision? I had always had this, uh, I think a few months prior, I had like this dream. I always knew that if I had a child, I would want a boy. And grateful that God gave me a boy. And I knew that as much as what I was doing probably wasn't what God wanted, like sex outside of wedlock, I knew that my son had was intentional to me. I knew how dead I felt, and I knew that God was using him to save my life. Wow. And because I knew that, I was like, I would protect him with anything. And so even when they're asking me to apologize, I'm like, I don't feel like he's a mistake. And so since he's not a mistake, then I'm not going to say anything about it i'm gonna just keep pushing and believing that god is going to see us through this yeah and that was a stance that i took i can be very stubborn for the right reasons for the right causes and that was one of the ones that i took even at that age wow so take us through that right now you're going to a different a different church what what did god begin to do this after your pregnancy so after my pregnancy, um, I was in university. I was determined not to be a stereotype. Now I'm in university, I'm raising my child, and we're going through his diagnosis and everything. But life was honestly okay in that aspect. In the spiritual aspect, I was going to church, but there was a really pivotal moment when I was going to church, but I was still having sex outside of church. And it was a really icky feeling that I felt when I go to church on Sundays. And so I told God, I'm like, I can't keep doing this. I have to make a decision. It's either you or church. And I chose the streets. I chose to um, be in the world. I told him I'm not going to come back. One day I will, but at the moment I can't be in church right now. I can't do both. I couldn't leave the world behind. I couldn't give up sexual sin because it's the only thing that made me feel comforted in that moment. And this analogy that I had for God at the time, I said, it's like a child looking in a candy store, seeing everything in there, knowing that he wants it, knowing that one day he'll be in there. But right now is not that moment. And I just said, one day I'll be back. And I left. Hmm. Um, and from there, it was just me, my son, and just like battling 
battling the different things that we went through, the, the diagnosis and the appointments and school and just trying not to be a dropout. And it was pressure, but I was okay with it. At 21, I experienced another sexual assault. That one really rocked me because it I did everything right, in my opinion, and it still happened. And I had to go to gospel choir the same day. And I was just like, again, crying out to God, please, like, I get it. I'm sorry. Like, I know this, I know this dance. We've been here before, but I'm like, please, I really cannot get pregnant right now. Like, that's always been my prayer is God, please don't let me come up with no babies. And so, um, it was cool. I was like, okay, I'm going to get back on track. I'm going to get back in church. I'm like, okay, we're back now. We're back in church. And so going through that process, it really felt like a big in and out with me and God. But I was like, he always knew that he had my heart. A few months later, I had met this guy in Jersey. We kicked it off. Um, everything went well. And within three months, he proposed. And it was interesting because with all the rejection and abandonment that I felt, I never felt that anyone would love me. I never felt like I'd ever be a wife. I never thought that I'd be anything more than the disgrace that they called me. I just knew that I was this child's mother and um, that was it. That was all my identity was wrapped in being his mom because I knew I was at least good at that. And so when I got um, engaged, I was like, wow, I, I've been raped four times. Like, who would who would want someone like me? And it really showed me another side of God. And I said, OK, cool. Within um, the year of us being engaged, my son got sick. And it took me three times bringing him to the hospital. Every time the hospital would send us home, on the third time, I'm like, I'm not leaving until you figure out what's wrong. They, they ran their tests. They brought me upstairs. And they said, I'm sorry to tell you, your son's going to die. He had, his heart had deteriorated to 5% heart function within four months. And I told God that if he took my son, that he might as well just take my life. I told him that I wasn't going to live without my child. And that if he took him, he was taking me, that I was going to be laying right next to him because there was nowhere else for me to go. There's nothing else for me to do. That was the only man who loved me, aside of my fiance. I couldn't live with that pain of him not being here. And and how old was your son at the time? My son was seven at the time when we got the diagnosis. It was the weekend before my 25th birthday. And so it was on a Friday. By the Sunday, I had some friends from university come and they prayed with me. And the peace of God that came over me, it was like, it's indescribable. Unlike anything I've ever seen, known, it was just so calming that I knew right then and there, no matter what happened, we would be okay. So by the Saturday, they let us out of the hospital. We were back home. I woke up that morning like, man, I'm going through a lot. I have this engagement. I have this wedding. I don't, I don't know about all this, but we were home. And one of the women who came to pray with me came over and we were just talking on my son's bed, chopping it up, talking about life, being a pastor's daughter, everything. And talking about salvation, just knowing God for myself versus just the God of my parents. Mm -hmm. Right right then and there, I made a deal with God. I said, if you save my son, I will give you my life. I know you've been waiting for this, but if you save him, I will give you my life. That's the deal. There's no other way that this is going to work out. I need you to save him, and I will sacrifice myself for him. And so I got saved, said the prayer. And um, yeah, it was really a moment that it happened. And at the same time, because we're talking about relationships, she said something interesting. She said, sometimes we get something that is better than what we know, but it is not always God's best. Mm. 
And I said, okay. Well, I'd already been thinking it was a lot. So I sent my uh, fiance an email. I said, hey, I think we need to slow it down. There's a lot happening. And um, I just kind of left it at that. Well, the Monday, um, God had somebody, he sent somebody from Facebook, uh, this girl and her sister, they prayed out my whole entire apartment. I wanted to, to pray out every corner, make sure that, that it was safe for my son to be there. And after she was done praying, she said, by the way, the man that you're with is not your husband. God said, no, it's completely different. I took off my ring, I put it down on the table, and I said, okay. And I sent my fiance another email. I said, God said, no, we can't, we can't get married. And not just that we can't get married, like I have to break this off, like I cannot be with you. And he was devastated. I spent time consoling him because he was so devastated, but my mind was so made up that if I gave my life for God, or for my son essentially, if, any, if I did anything, I was so concerned that if I did anything outside of what I promised God, that my son would suffer. And I said, I can't, I can't do both. I got to pick and I'm sorry. If, if you're asking me to pick between you and my son, I'm picking my son every time. And so I told him I can't. And that's just, that's just what it was. And I was so set on it. And I watched God do the incredible for the next few months. Like every single time they told me that my son was going to die, he didn't. He like I watched God snatch him from death's door so many times. We went to Disney World. We went to basketball games, baseball games. Like God allowed us to create some such beautiful memories. And every time we were in and out of the hospital, we had nurses, we had doctors, all of that. And every time we went to the hospital, they're like, "This is it." And he just didn't die. He he came back smiling. And every time you ask him if he's okay, he would say, "I'm good." He would smile through the pain. And one time I asked him, "Why do you say you're good?" Is it that you know that it'll make me happy? And he looked and said, yeah. Even at eight, he was eight by then, he, he understood that he didn't want to see me sad. And so he would always say I'm good no matter how much it hurt. And with 5% heart function, he couldn't do a whole lot. He couldn't, he couldn't drink water sometimes and that crushed me. But I watched God move. We began to pray on Facebook. We had people sending us prayers. Like we would say, good morning, Facebook. And we would say prayers and I was teaching him all these things. and. When it hurt, he would he would praise God. And when he was better, he would praise God. And it just became this beautiful bond that we had. One morning, he woke up. We were back in the hospital. And one morning, he says he has to pee. We get him up. The nurse takes off all the machine things off of him. My sister said, hey, did you pee? And he said, yes. And he kind of stumbled back in my arms. And as he stumbled in my arms and I put him on the bed, he took his last breath. And my sister jumped up and she was screaming his name. They started to go to work on him, and I stood back, and I was just praying. I just kept praying in that moment. That's all I could do was I prayed. Even when they pronounced him dead, I still prayed. Anybody who came to the hospital, I, um, I said, if you're coming in here to cry, you can't come. You can't stay. This is a moment where God is going to bring him back, and I can't have any doubt in this room. We put on gospel music, and... Anybody, anybody who wanted to say rest in peace or anything, I would not allow them in the room. Uh, I was so like set on what God, what I believe God was going to do. It obviously caused some problems, but I was, I was so like, I just knew that God could do incredible things. So I told God that I wouldn't eat a thing until my son came back. From that day, I went into a water fast. 
And I believed in, I switched my mindset since my, my son was pronounced that I had to leave him at the hospital, which is really hard. I said, okay, God, until he comes back, I'm not gonna eat, we're gonna fast, we're gonna pray. And I had a few people who were praying with me. That week, I went through such heavy mocking. Like when I say they molly walked me with mocking, they were just like, what, what kind of God is this? Like, what, like how can you believe that he's gonna come? But they, they just said everything. They, they, they said everything. I hit it. And then I would, I had this devotional that I was reading. And one of the days it was like, though they mock you, stand. And I said, all right, God, we're going to keep going. And so his funeral, it, it was put together really quickly. About eight days later, the night before his funeral, I heard God say, well done. It was like audible. I heard it. And I said, okay, God, we celebrating. Tomorrow we're going to get this and my son's coming back. I put my son in PJs because I'm like, he's just sleeping. He's coming. He's getting up. When they asked me to, to sign the papers, it wasn't even me. I had such an out-of-body experience where something was signing the papers, but it wasn't me. I didn't, I didn't pick too many things. I didn't do too many things because I just knew he was coming back. And the next day, we're in the church, and I had even asked the pastor, I'm like, are you cool with resurrection? Because this is what we're doing. And we, we got, we're trying to get everybody on board because I need to know if you're not on board with it, let me find somebody else. Like, this is how I'm thinking. He's like, yeah, 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 I'm cool with it. I said, cool. So we go, and I'm just smiling. I'm there. I'm dressed in all blue because that's his favorite color. Blue lips, blue dress. I think my hair was blonde at the time. Um, but I'm sitting there waiting, and I hear the pastor, and I'm watching the service, and I'm watching everything happen, and I'm just waiting. I'm just waiting for the moment where we can go up and pray and bring him back. And then the pastor closes the casket. He said, close the casket. He said, nobody else can come up here except for family. He, he didn't want no one but family up there. And it was interesting because as much as, as much as I love my family, my family wasn't with me in this. And so when he said nobody else but family, what he said was none of the people praying with me could go up there. And so I watched as my family got up there and um, I ran out of the church. I, I ran right out. And uh, a friend ran behind me. She put me in her in her van, I think. And I was just, I was numb. I was crying and I was numb. They drove me to the cemetery and I, I sat in the car. I did not get out. I did not move. I, I think all I was like, God, why? I couldn't understand it. And I was like, God, you said mustard seed faith. And I, I did that. I said, God, you said, well done to me the night before. Why would you say, well done if it's, I said, why? And I just sat there. When it was done, we went back to the hall and that was the first time that I ate. And now started the process. Like I told God beforehand, I would be okay. Whether my son came back or not, I was okay with it. But I also had so much faith that I was like, God, you said just a little bit of faith. I, I rose my faith. I rose my faith in the faith of those around me to the point that so, one of my friend's moms came up to me. She's like, I didn't get you anything because I thought your son was coming back. That was the people around me. She's like, you rose my faith level. And like ever before, it was just unheard of. I had a couple of people. I, went, I actually went to church the, the very next day. I had a couple people come up to me. And one of them was explaining to me what she saw when she was standing at the grave. And she said she saw that my son was running laps in heaven. 
And that is so him. Like, KK, that's his name. KK was always running laps. Like, because his illness made him slow, he loved everything fast. He wanted to be a race car driver, like, everything quick. And so I was like, yeah, yeah, that checks out. He's running laps. Um, and she also said that she saw Jesus, like, nudging him to come back to earth. But he, he shook his head no. And I was like, you know what? I can't even blame him. This is what gave me peace is that I was never born into a body with an illness. And so I don't know what it feels like for those eight years that he lived. I don't know what it's like to be wanting freedom and not having to experience it. And so I'm like, I can't be mad at that. I can't take that away from him. He found Jesus, he's in heaven. Who wouldn't want that? So that's what gave me peace in that moment. And now started the hard part, which was the journey with God. And that was hard. No, challenging. I don't like the word hard. It was challenging. Um, it was dark. I was diagnosed with depression. I was diagnosed with anxiety. I didn't even know what anxiety was. And I walked through this season where because of the drama that happened with my son, I couldn't go home right away. I love my parents. And when we were just going through something and I couldn't go home. When my son passed, I lost, uh, I lost my apartment, I lost my finances, and I lost my child, all in the span of two weeks. And so I had a friend who took me to Bermuda with her, and she said, hey, you can stay at my place. And I said, okay. So I moved to her house for a bit. We were working it out, it was cool. I, I ended up getting a job right away because everyone was like, you need a job, you need to work, you need all this stuff. So I got a job, um, but I started having panic attacks. Like it was just insane what was happening. But eventually, I th my friend and I started, assistant started, it, it wasn't going well. It hit, we hit a rough patch. And um, I decided that I would move back home. And that was because little by little, God was allowing me to have conversations with my parents. It seemed like a safe space. Like I could go there and just chill out for a bit. And the place that I had sworn that I would never return to, this is, a, this is God's sense of humor. The place that I swore I would never go back to, he brought me back there. And I realized that sometimes when we're hurting, we want to hide from things. And he was bringing me to a place where I had to like heal in the midst of it. And, and, and that, was, that was interesting to walk through. One thing about baptism, after I got saved, during the whole process with my son, I actually tried to get baptized again. I was going to a church at the time and the plan was I was gonna get baptized. And I just felt God calling me as I'm learning about him because he had brought me through deliverance and evangelism and I was learning about him. And when I talked to them, they said, oh, well, they need a group to baptize. They, they didn't want to just do just me. They need to get a whole group together. So when they get a group, then I could get baptized. I said, oh, okay. So I had to wait. And then a few months later, or I believe this after my son passed, they finally got a group together. And I said, hey, you can get baptized now. And I went through the steps and I went through the stages and I was like, okay, I've been waiting for this for a long time. God has brought me through this process. And um, the night before the baptism, I said, something don't feel right. I can't do this. And I had reached out to them to talk to them, to talk to the pastors. And I'm like, I don't know why, but I'm, I'm feeling like this is not right. And they're like, well, don't let the devil win. And all the stuff was trying to encourage me. And I was like, so I called my grandma. And I said, grandma, I don't know if I should do this. And she's like, well, if it don't feel right, don't do it. I said, okay. And so I didn't show up. 
And so now I'm going through, so that was that with the baptism, but now I'm going through this season with God. And there was one particular night while I was still living at my friend's house. Everything had gotten me so frustrated. I was in this new space. I didn't understand it, but I was trying to make the, the best of it. I went to the gym. By the time I got to the gym, I was like so mad about something. I didn't even go in. I'm like, you know what? I'm gonna just walk back. And so now I'm walking back. And as I'm walking back, it starts to rain. And I said, of course it's gonna rain. That's how my life is. Of course it would rain. I said, God, can you hold the rain, please? And the rain stopped. And so I just started, I just kept walking. And as I'm walking, I'm walking over a bridge. I'm looking at this side to the cliff. I use humor for a lot of things. And so as much as I'm thinking I should jump, I'm like, a, I'm afraid of heights. B, I'm like, that's a far jump. That's probably going to hurt. And then I'm like looking to this side into oncoming traffic. And I'm like, that looks like that's going to be really painful. And so I'm like, man, I can't even do none of this correctly. And so I'm just walking home and I just keep walking. And as soon as I get to the building and get inside, the rain falls. And I said, oh, well, at least you kept that for me. And in that season, God and I had been through this thing where Every time I tried to commit suicide, he blocked it. Mm -hmm. Like he would have somebody call me, something would interrupt the thought, something. And so the very next morning um, when I got to work, my father had called me and we they live outside the city, at least 30 minutes. And he's like, hey, how's it going? I'm like, it's cool. And then he said, oh, I saw you last night walking. And I was like, oh yeah, I was just walking home. And from that moment, I told God, I'm not going to try again. I said, every time I try to kill myself, you stop it. But that one with my dad, that my dad almost witnessed it, I said, I'm, I'm going to stop. And so I used a lot of music to help me heal. In my darkest moments, I would say, God, help, because that's all I could say. I only had two words. And that peace would come back on me. That peace would come back over me. And I was like, okay. We're going to keep going. We're going to keep pushing. So now I moved back to my parents' house and I have a whole bunch of bills going on. But um, there's something really cool that God allowed me to get into, which is lip art and painting. I used to love painting and drawing when I was a kid. And I used to get bullied a lot for my lips being too big. And so there was just so many things that people picked at that now I see the beauty in. And so when God started having me experimenting with colors, it was really beautiful that I started using my lip as a canvas. And I started, I love the colors. This was like a happy place for me. When in a world where everything felt dark, this lip art was just happy. And I was at the workplace and people would love it and they comment on it. And so I tried new styles and tried new things. And then it went from one color to two to mixing. And it just evolved into something so beautiful that like, I will sit and ask God, God, what do you want me to paint today? And when most people paint canvases, I paint my lips. I use it as a way to express myself. I use it as a way to start a conversation. People talk about it. Like it has become my identity. And I think the beautiful thing is the thing that people use to reject me, um, that I'm weird, that I'm unique, that I'm out there, is a thing that God has made so ingrained in my identity. A year after, well, as we're coming up to the one-year celebration of my son's life, I started going back to the old church because I'm back at my old, my parents' house. And there was a new new pastor, so new management under the church. He was talking to all the old, uh, all the people and wanted to get a sense of where we were. And when he was talking to me, he was asking me why I wasn't baptized. 
And I said, well, I tried, but they didn't have enough people and it just didn't feel right and all these things. And he was like, no, you're getting baptized. He said, even if it's just you, just, just one person, I will do it. And so on the one year anniversary of my son passing, August 16th, 2015 now, because he passed in 2014, I got baptized and it was just me. And it was beautiful. And God made sure that I knew that he cared enough that even if it was just me, he would come back. And he would make sure that I knew that my identity was in Christ and that nothing else mattered to him. Nicola, for people who have gone through that same pain, who have lost a loved one, specifically a son, mm -hmm. For that person who, who's watching right now, what is a word of encouragement that, that you can give them um, as they're going through this? That they lied to you when they said it doesn't get better. It's not time that heals. It is the decision to let God in. It is the choice that you make to choose joy, to choose peace, to choose to make memories. I celebrate my son's life in every which way. I remember the things that he loves, popcorn, pizza, race cars. I do those things in memory of him and I allow myself to be free in it. I don't allow myself to be held back or to be in bondage of the thought of what could have been. I celebrate for who he was and for what God gave me. So it does get better, but with choice, choosing to be happy, choosing to love, choosing to be free. Kolo, when it came to uh, the sexual abuse that you went through, mm -hmm. um, how was God, if you could give us a little bit of insight, how was God able to uh, heal those parts? Is that something that you're still kind of processing with him? No, God has healed it. Oh, man, I gave it all to him. And so he brought me into... After I got saved, he brought me into deliverance ministry. And with deliverance... A lot of it was me releasing it, me writing it out, me saying that it wasn't like it wasn't okay, me realizing the parts that I played, the parts that were other people. Like he allowed me to just release it, mm -hmm. release it through writing, release it through speaking, release it through prayer, and just sit with him as he tells me who I am, as he retells me how beautiful I am or how he created me and he rebuilt my identity. And so we have processed it in such an amazing way. I'm, I'm super excited that I don't have to carry that burden with me anymore. Yeah. For, for that person who went through that as you know, and that's connecting with your testimony for that part of your testimony, and maybe nobody knows that they went through this, right? What What is a word of encouragement that you can give to that person watching, men or woman, that has been sexually abused and is dealing with that internally? Write it out. Writing is a way to get it from outside of you. Um, writing is very therapeutic. Nobody has to see it. You can rip it up after, but write it out. Don't allow it just to stay in your mind. Don't allow it just to stay as a thought. Because when you write it out, then you can read it back. And as you're reading it back, you can give it to God and you say, God, this is not, I don't receive this and I want to be healed from this. So my, my best encouragement is to write it out, get it outside of you, because as long as it's still inside, you're able to be tricked or, or lied to about what happened. Hmm. 
Cola, who is Jesus to you? Jesus is my everything. <laughs> he is the air that I breathe. He is, I'm so happy he, he, he gave me time. I'm so happy that when I chose to leave the church for sex, he, he didn't shame me. I'm so happy that he, my sin is, it's, he doesn't remember it. I did a lot of stuff and he does not hold it against me. Jesus really is my everything. He's just, yeah. Any last words for people who are watching your testimony right now? So one of the really cool things that God has done, because um, I'm an artist through and through, so one of the really cool things that God has done is he allowed me to be a poet. He, um, he actually had me write a book, um, my memoir. He had me write it all down. It took me seven years, and there's 77 chapters. Like, it's all God. And um, it's a combination of poetry and storytelling, me telling the story that I've been through. But one of the things he reminded me right now is that I am a poet and that I need to speak the words that he gave me. So I I'm about to do that. Yeah, let's do it. I don't normally title my poems. Um, I feel like whatever interpretation you want to take from it, that's what it is. But this one, th this one is called Survivor's Guilt. Nobody tells you how to survive after a piece of you has died because they don't know what to say. How do you tell somebody to smile through the heartbreak? How do you tell somebody to breathe through the storm? How do you tell somebody that their mind won't betray them? This guilt, this guilt was a rotten stench that I couldn't wait to get rid of, yet I accepted at the same time, comfortably. Guilt encompassed me, shame startled me, disaster, disappointment, and disgrace became me until it didn't stink no more. I survived. I survived. The traumas, dramas, and death of my spirit lay broken like childhood dreams, adolescence stolen, yet I fought to survive. I fought to be free. My son saved me. Love kept us together. Faith pulled us further. Memories of your hugs and smooth dances pranced east to west. Your body begged for rest. The stillness of your air as I held you. Your last breath blew against my heart. Blue skies above. You sleep peacefully. And I wished it were me instead, but I survived. Why? Why is a question that I cannot get the answer to? I don't even want the answer to tell you the truth. I just want him, my son, my life, my best friend, my identity. I want it back. Without him, who am I? With every moment of happiness, I witness the emotional change inside. It's exhausting. Being happy without him doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem like it should be. Not with me. See, we made a promise to live life to the fullest. He fulfilled his purpose and moved on past me and left me full of jealousy that he was too good for this earth. I searched for earthly treasures. They seem to change as often as Canadian weather fleeting, leaving me empty. I feel invisible in a crowd laughter. Sometimes it feels way too loud. My bed is more than just a home. It's where I belong as I contemplate life. Why is it that colors fade as time goes on? God, help me. God, let me, my son, let me be a part of his light. It beams so, so bright. I was blinded and forgot that he was alone. Now he's gone home and I want him back. A fruit of my, my womb, an inheritance of smiles, lessons of gratitude, rewarded by his attitude. I want to be mad and rude, yet I stay silent. I lack understanding, so I'm praying for peace. I need a new lease on life if I'm going to keep pushing, pushing my feelings aside and inside cause a color collide.
giving root to a periodic pain that hits me like waves, rough ocean type that bury me, water in my nose, I can't breathe. These waves seem taller than me, 5'3", I'm drowning in my feelings and stages, trapped in emotional cages, mentally stewing, numbingly alive, the sides of the lies I tell myself keep growing. I say I'm okay. They say, I say don't be happy. They say keep smiling. I think sadness is life. You say act normal. I say keep it together. To get her wisdom is to breathe honesty. It's okay not to be okay. Some moments will knock me right out. Getting up before the bell is all that counts. Learning to walk on water is the gift of God is the gift God is giving me for the replacement of sadness. Emotionally bleeding, plagued by memories, taking up rent for free. It's a poison I will no longer drink. If I could just push through and touch. I knocked, he opened, I cried, he listened, a witness to my pain. My father's changing the game. Breathe deeply. I'm no longer the same. I'm breaking up with unforgiveness and shame, partnering with forgiveness, love, acceptance, and balanced sleep. Must quench the search for my existence. I exist for a reason. I'm still living through the seasons. My reason to live is to love in spite of my situations. Despite what life continues to challenge me with, I am not only surviving, I am thriving. Unconditional love is freeing me, freeing my mind, forcing me to ask myself questions. Who do I have left to give to? What is my reason to live? Where can I be the most impactful? Why am I so passionate? When it's my time to go, will I be ready? How can I live forever? Today, I decided to live. Washed my face, walked out the door, and felt taller. Today, I decided to love again. Cause love runs so much deeper than the grave. And I am no longer a slave to guilt.